And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very, very special guest P. Jelly Clark on the Coot Street Podcast. And we're off again, and we want to start uh, Jelly by offering you congratulations on, on well, two things uh, right now. Ring Shout is, is very visible on the award circuit, and the Master of Gin is coming out in less than two weeks, I guess. I know, yeah. It's, it's a busy time. Um, could not have predicted all of this uh, happening at once. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, a, it's a flurry of um, just preparing, preparing for the novel while uh, still getting, you know, thankfully getting nominations for the, uh, for the novella and people still writing me to, you know, have interviews about the novella, but having to think about the novel. So it's been <laughs> trying to juggle. It's like I have two books out at once. And, and and not very similar to each other either. No, they are very, very different. In fact, uh, I think one of my, um, one of the readers at, at Tor, uh, one of the editors there said, you know, we just got through reading this heavy, but, you know, still thrilling book, Ring Shout. And then we read this one. We're like, okay, <laughs> is this the same person? Because this is a very different book. And I was like, yeah, it's a different, completely different book, yeah. I'm sure well, one of the questions... Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. I was like, what I thought there was, that if they'd been reading your work, they would have seen that they both... Those two two works, Ring Shout and Master of Gin, resonate with different parts of what you've been doing anyway. I mean, because Ring Shout, to me, very much is, you know... It resonates with with work like The Secret Lies of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington, which won awards a couple of years ago. And yeah. the you know Master of Gin obviously is a continuation of something you've been doing for about five years now. So it really is that sort of combination of something that is on the surface of it very serious, but is also entertaining, and then something that is that on the surface of it is almost purely entertaining, but actually is quite serious underneath it. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really good point that you've made. Um, like I've said, uh, while there are differences between the two, uh, I think anyone reading Master of Gin and reading for the uh, the subtones there uh, cannot miss the anti-colonialism, the fact that the origins of the story came about while I was uh, teaching classes um, uh, on world history and doing a lot of anti-colonial history and uh, literally watching, showing students the Battle of Algiers, Pontecorvo's uh, famous film, The Battle of Algiers. Really? And, these were the kind of things in reading Edward Said's Orientalism. So those were in there. And I, I wanted to tell a story in some ways, have this anti-colonial, almost post-colonial story. But you're right. I wanted it to be entertaining. Did you want I wanted it to be fun. Did and you- that be the, under, the undertones, right? But uh, if you peel it back a bit, you say, oh, wait a minute. But did, did <laughs> Between just, all this, these quirky jokes, uh, he's, he's saying oh, it's, something. It's, here, it's, yeah. uh, I mean, that would make a great movie. I had to say, I said that in my review. It's, it's ready for it. But the thing that, refreshed me about it when I first saw it. And I, I want to know how you ended up with Cairo, which is a great change from what I've, Jonathan and I were talking, I think on last week's podcast about feeling just kind of overloaded with steampunk London uh, these days. And, and simply moving it to Cairo made a lot of the, uh, the, the, the clockwork uh, mechanisms and the, uh, the trams and that sort of thing. Uh, it, it, it seemed like a reinvention of some steampunk conventions. Yeah, I think it, that's exactly it. And I think, um, I think of any, look, I, I like steampunk. I even like the steampunk set in various forms of London, even when they're not called London. Right, exactly. <laughs> so many versions. I like the TV shows. I'm, I'm really into that. I, I like even the stuff that's not fully steam, but is in that era. But I did want something different. I wanted to do something different. Like, and I wanted to set it somewhere else. And I, I didn't know exactly where um, I cast around for a bit. Um, but again, because of that nature of anti-colonialism, I knew it was going to be somewhere in the global South. Mm. I knew I wanted it to be someplace that had, because of course, steampunk often sometimes misses talking about empire, uh, though we've seen a lot more these days doing so. Right. Um, but even when they do so, they still try to situate it from in the metropole. So I wanted to situate it from the colony. Uh, or the would-be colony in this case. <laughs> and so uh, I think w- when I first started the story, one of the first places I was actually going to look was uh, Sudan, actually. Um, mm-hmm. And part of this was because, uh, and I'd written a while back, I wrote a, something on my blog about the power of the Maxim gun, right? And how the Maxim gun became this tool of colonialism, mm-hmm. uh, basically taken to, quote-unquote, frighten the natives, <laughs> you know, and especially its use in Africa and parts of Asia, but especially its use in Africa. And so 
there's a famous battle uh, that the British have in Sudan against uh, the Sudanese forces and what allows this small group of uh, British and some um, some Anglo-Egyptian troops as well to win is they have machine guns and it completely decimates uh, this much larger force, right? It becomes this the symbol in a sense, it becomes their battle of Thermopylae, right? It's mm-hmm. told, it's told over and over again, uh, and becomes a symbol of the power of this gun, though none of them saw that in a few years, they would all be turning it against each other <laughs> during World War One, <laughs> right? It's, it's right. irony in that way. History has its ironies, but I want to set it there. But at the end of the day, whenever you're looking at a story like this and doing alternate history, you want a place that has the most information and Cairo is a hard place to be. <laughs> it's just, it's the crossroads, right? From the rest of Africa to the Near East. Uh, you have the Mediterranean. You have your everyone, everyone who's everyone has been there, right? From Alexander the Great to Napoleon, right. everyone has come through the Ottomans, everyone else, right? So, you know, it just became the perfect place where I could encapsulate all of these various cultures that I want to talk about. It just gave me more to work with. And so uh, while Sudan was the top pick, nothing against you, Sudan. Khartoum was a was a was a nice place to be, think about, but uh, Cairo just simply but, you know, it's interesting Cairo think, won out like the Olympics. Like there's a city yeah. who's buying well, I mean, Cairo, it's, it's, Cairo won out. And yeah. For one thing, it's, it's it's a major metropolis, even without becoming the major metropolis it becomes in in your novel. Right. So it's, yeah. So it, it kind of asks a question, and it's a question I've seen asked in different forms. I think Nisi Shaw's novel Everfair kind of asks this about the Congo. What if you get what if you get rid of the colonial uh, oppression? You get rid of the Ottomans, you get rid of the British. And what happens if a culture like that actually develops uh, modern technology yeah. and gets ahead of some of the Western metropolises? Metropoli? Metropolis. Metropolis. Yeah. Metropolis, oh, <laughs> yeah. Right. I think that's, yeah, I think that's that's a great what if. And I'll tell you, it, it's, a, it's a what if that if you speak to a lot of marginalized people or people who come from these backgrounds, mm-hmm. they've, they've had these what ifs over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think anyone has, right? If there's the empire and so forth, well, what if that didn't happen, right? I've seen some like in North America, like what if the Incas, I forget whose book had that where the Incas go to Europe and they run into uh, Europeans, right? Instead of right. vice versa. And so we're often asking these questions as somewhat as correctives some ways as sometimes as to subvert what we normally think of these eras and especially in a steampunk that's dominated by Britain, what better way to do this, I thought, than and especially thinking of anti-colonialism, I said, what if it's not just anti-colonial? What if it's post-colonial? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or what if the colonialism didn't even actually happen? Like is there a word for that? And so that's a lot of what I'm exploring is like what would this society be like? And of course I decided to throw in a little bit of chaos by throwing in magic. Well, just a lot of magic. It's not a little. A magic. lot of magic. <laughs> yeah, and magic in a way was like my antidote when I was coming up with. I think, like you just said, Gary, it's like, okay, so I have this place. It defeats colonialism. Well, how? Mm-hmm. Like, what? You know, you have to think about how does this make it alternate? Like, what technology? The Maxim gun was a powerful technology, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason that Europe is able to do what it does uh, after the Industrial Revolution is because of what that unleashes, right? There was a time when. Europe could not simply walk into much of Africa. The disease environment alone was mm. was disastrous, right? Oh, and so, no. it's the post-industrial revolution that will be sinking, Jap- pardon me, Chinese junk ships, right, and <laughs> invading and taking Africa. So I was like, what is the antidote to that? Well, it's going to be more technology. I could have them come for the technology. And I was like, what is a great antidote to industrialization than a bit of magic? Right. Well, well you've got this, right? Yeah. So you've got this fertile location that you've picked in Cairo. You've got this absolutely volatile time that you can set. You know, you set it in right at the turn around the turn of the century and into the into the twentieth century. How did you find your way into the characters in the book? Um, you know, as much as I, as much as I say that, you know, this was birth of thinking about Edward Said and all that, none of that came about, of course, when I first started thinking <laughs> about this. That's like, yeah. in, that's in, as I think back on, oh, what must have, what must have triggered me? I, I started thinking about that. But early on, sorry, my dog just did something odd. <laughs> so yeah, early on, I think I literally first saw my main character protagonist, Fatma, and I saw that first scene with the dead gin. Like I literally, you know, when you get a story uh-huh. idea, and I just, that was the idea. I knew nothing else. Right. When mm-hmm. I saw that, I saw her in the suit. I saw mm-hmm. her with the bowler 
And I knew that I wanted to do something with the story. Now it was like, well, how do I get there? And so I think with her as a character that just starts off as this main protagonist, um, she was like the center. And mm-hmm. I think everyone else came in as it went, right? Yeah. Uh, CT and my nod to ancient Egypt in that way by having these societies that still uh, worship ancient Egyptian gods because how could I, how can you do Egypt and ignore the pyramids and the temples and everything right, exactly. else, right? Like I wanted to point out, well, notice Egypt is modern and it's not just that, right? Uh, Egypt has a history beyond that and yet it's that too. Well, and so ancient, uh, ancient Egyptian gods bubble to the yeah. surface later in the story. But the right, your, your protagonist yeah. is, I, I hope you've got a good film agent because I can think of about a dozen actors who would love to play that role. She's a dandy for one thing. The way she's she a dandy, writes. yeah. And, and dandy yeah, is, she's a, is just, but um, the other thing that uh, struck me about the, the presence of colonialism at the beginning of the novel, not the not in the, the two stories which precede it. Mm-hmm. The beginning of the novel is a uh, massacre of one of the last, I guess, remnants of old-style colonialism in Cairo, which is a British organization. Yeah. And we're not giving anything away because this is like the right. first chapter. There's a, a yeah, it's a, a and it's said in the thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they uh, all I could see was uh, well. First of all, it's it's very funny in a gruesome way uh, to see <laughs> characters out of a Michael Caine movie being. Massacred like it, but historically, all I could think about was the Order of the Golden Dawn, um, yeah. actual you know British kind of attempt uh, around what eighteen eighties nineteen hundred to to absorb uh, largely Egyptian and largely Middle Eastern mythologies for their own purposes. Alistair Crowley was involved, and Yeats was involved, and uh, I think even people like Arthur Mackin and um, mm-hmm. Algernon Blackwood were, and and this. Your order of what is it's the order of Al Jahiz, yeah. Yes, right. Looks to me like the same group of people, just really cheerfully looking over Egyptian mythology. You, you would not be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, one of the things that's great to do with alternate history is that you have a lot at your fingertips, right? And sometimes when I go looking to build these worlds. Um, I have my idea in mind, and then I start reading a bit of history. I'm like, well, here's something I have to throw in here. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is, right? And so certainly uh, the Order of the Golden Dawn was part of it. They weren't alone. There were so many other types of groups like this, uh, mysticists and spiritualists, all who see ancient Egypt as this place that, you know, pardon me, Egypt period, as this place where they can find forms of mysticism. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's even a little little dab at such things as Freemasonry and others, right? All these different groups that uh, do this. So yeah, there's definitely uh, that influence was in mind as I was doing this. Yeah. And the other, the other, Oh, I'm sorry, Jonathan, go ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, the other thing that occurs to me to to bounce around a little bit is that Fatima feels like a very modern 21st century kind of protagonist. She's queer. She's dandily dressed. She's very out in the world she's in. How important was that side of things to, to finding her story? Yeah. And, you know, it's one thing I wanted to do with, with this story. I, you know, whenever you're writing a character like this, there's this, there's this balance you want to do where you want people to believe they exist in that time, but then you also are speaking to a modern audience, right? And so, People during that era had certain cadences in their speak. Even she's speaking Egyptian Arabic, right? There are certain ways that she's going to talk and do the things are going to be different. And I sometimes realize that doesn't always translate. Right? <laughs> if you, you read yep. some older writers and the way they have the characters speak as they're writing in the 1920s works. A person reading that today might get bored or lost <laughs> with the superfluous. So I purposely bring in certain modern idioms and the way they speak. I bring that into, I did it in Ring Shout as well, where mm-hmm. they're, they're definitely from that time, but I'm also doing that balance where I want to make sure my audience stays with this and it has its own cadence and flow that they can, they can get from this. And, you know, people say, well, doesn't that throw people out? And I said, I have monsters in here. I can pretty much do what I want <laughs> as long as I can, as long as I keep them, the audience. And but so, you know, sometimes part people... of this was, yeah, part of you know, p- part of doing that in a sense was was to have that have that relationship with my audience. But then again, there are certain things in here. Her being queer, for instance, the uh, the um, the suits, 
you know, I want to make sure people understand that, you know, queer people didn't, as much as that's a modern thing, queer people have existed <laughs> for every queer people have existed in that region, right? And so that that shouldn't be anything. And even the suit dressing, I can, I literally, for anyone, I've made certain I found these, for anyone who might wonder, that's a bizarre thing. I can find you women from the Middle East dressed in suits from the early 1900s, <laughs> where this was simply in photographs, right? And so I was like, if anyone has a problem, Here's my picture to show you that well, look at, look at, I can find you some historical version of this. These dandyish women I was dressing say, in western suits. Photographs of George Sand, uh, who, yeah. who looked exactly dressed exactly like uh, like yeah. like your character does. And uh, if, yes, or even there's a Harlem uh, photographer uh, Van der Zee where he took all these photographs from Harlem and from the early 1900s. And there are women as well, sometimes wearing yeah. these suits. And so I, I play around with some of that. And you know, I but I wanted to have her. She's out, and yet I'm. But while she's out, I think as you see, especially in Master of Jin, you realize she's not out. Out, right? <laughs> people may have their thoughts, but it's still this society. And that's another thing I want to say here. Like people have said, you've created this utopia, right? And I said, well, I didn't really create a utopia, right? I I said, but I suppose if we think of a world where colonialism doesn't happen, then it seems like a utopia. But in that sense, but. This is also a world with its own problems. It has problems of class. It has problems of color and race. And it has problems uh, of identity and sexuality and all of these other things. And so it's a society that is still grappling with all of that, as well as grappling with the issues of what we, quote unquote, call modernity, right? Mm-hmm. Grappling with all of these things. And so Fatma is this character who is, you know, she's very proud of herself. She's... uh she, she doesn't hide who she is, and yet we understand that she cannot be out in the same way um, because this is early 1900s, right? And the society still has these problems. She's also um, a, a kind of super detective. I mean, she's, she's using, yeah. she's a modern character in the way Sherlock Holmes is a modern character, in the way that, I don't know, Arsene Lupin is a modern character. She thinks her way through issues. Yeah. And the structure, right. the kind of organized, it's, it's, the way we're talking, we may sound this, may make this novel sound like it's all over the map, but it's got a very clear structure of a police procedural and you kind of follow the rules of the police procedural. And she's even, even to the point of having uh, an assistant that she doesn't really want. I mean, that's every Clint Eastwood movie um, ever made. (laughs) Every. Well, it's, I've always, I always tell people like, I think I had to answer some interview questions the other day. They were like, how do you avoid tropes? I said, avoid tropes. (laughs) I said, I love tropes. I said, you know, there's that, there's that site TV tropes or what have you. I said, the reason that you can get, fall down that uh, rabbit hole of reading that thing is because you're like, oh, I love some of these tropes. Fun, yeah. Of course, some tropes I hate. And the ones I hate, I subvert or I make fun of. Right. But the ones I like, I use them, you know, when I can. But I always, like I always tell people, I said, the thing is, can I use the trope, but perhaps do it in a way that you haven't seen before, mm. right? So in this trope, um, people are probably used to the hard-nosed detective, like you said, the Clint Eastwood and the and the young rookie. Um, but in this case, uh, the hard-nosed detective is a queer woman. Right. The rookie is <laughs> a young Muslim woman, right? So immediately there, this is taking that trope and putting new characters in here. And as you put these new characters, new identities, it opens up this entire different perspective of looking at it, these different lens. Right. And so I always say, you know, I, I don't think that, I always say that, you know, I don't throw away tropes. I, I see... If I would have fit into them, how does how do these new characters I'm placing here change the trope? How does it make it something more? Well, and I, 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 um, will people want to read them? After all, if nobody wanted to read trope, they wouldn't keep seeing them. Well, I was going to say that the, the, when you talk about the police, going back to a, a dead Jen in Cairo was a murder mystery. Yeah. So you're you're using yeah. a very conventional form and then opening it up. Uh, I mean. The, the, the procedural part of it is by the time we get to the last third of uh, Master of Jen. I've lost track of the procedurals because I'm trying to keep track of the fireworks, basically, which <laughs> I think where you want us to be at that point. Yeah, but we, right, yeah, yeah. But we, we shouldn't spend the whole time on this as much as I'd like to because the other one, which is under discussion a lot now, um, is Ring Shout, which is, to my mind, maybe not as much fun as Master of Jen, but a lot scarier. Yeah, that one, um, yeah, and as I keep saying, it's, it's just always ironic. That story was... I pitched that story uh, to my editor toward the time, uh, Diana Foe. Um, 
basically as as a filler because you know again publishing takes forever mm-hmm. uh, i had finished master vision my first draft and i said well how when would it come out you know this would be my first novel and she was like oh well it's be a few years i think this is 2019 and so she was like do you you know, do you have anything else? Maybe we could put out some novellas in between. <laughs> do you have anything else in mind? I said, oh, I have this quirky story. It's been bouncing around in my head. I know it's called Ring Shout. And here's what I think it's about. And she's like, okay, let's go for it. I said, <laughs> oh, great, let's do it. <laughs> and uh, then I procrastinated. I procrastinated. I procrastinated. I did that thing where I'm going to do research. And I think it was due in September. And I started it sometime in mid-August. Wow. Because <laughs> I had the semester wow. beginning. And I wrote it in three weeks. Right? Oh, wow. so it was like I was under pressure. I had to get it done because the semester's starting. I can't do this during school semester. Uh, and so I just got it done. Um, you know, and of course, I went through 100 revisions. Uh, Diana gave me phenomenal feedback on how to really um, make the story even better. Um, but yeah, it was, like I said, I'm, I'm still surprised at the reception I'm surprised and I'm really thankful and <laughs> blown over by the reception of this story that I thought, again, would just be a filler. Well, something to tie you over. <laughs> I, I, well, I, I guess the, this is the unreported part of these processes that mm-hmm. quite often what appears to be a clear, simple plan, you know, I'm going to write this thing, I'll write that thing, that is actually the product of discussions and events in the background in publishing yeah. that, that, that really have no, almost nothing to do with what the reader sees at all. I mean, for, to, to, yeah. for the reader, it's like, You've done a few short stories. You do Dejan and Cairo, and you do the two novellas for it. And that all seems a path, and this just seems to be the next thing as opposed to be some odd kind of thing that you've pulled out to fill yeah. a gap. Yeah, to fill a gap. And, you know, and I'll tell you, I wanted to write this story. Mm. Um, I just didn't know how I would write it. And so even when I pitched it, the story had been in my head probably rattling around, I would say, for something like three years. Um, but I hadn't fully fleshed it out. Mm. Right. This is why I procrastinated so long. I, I I had the idea, and what I tend to do with my story ideas is, I'm I'm a daydreamer. I think I've been a daydreamer since I was a kid. Right. I'm the person who kid who is walking down the school halls, and I'm thinking like, hey, what if an orc bursts through here any second? What might happen? <laughs> you know, it's just that's just the way my mind works. And so I I was actually the year I was thinking of ring shout was in my head a lot. I was actually. Uh, Doing, I was finishing up my PhD and I was doing an academic uh, fellowship, um, which was like about seven hours away from my home. So I was living mm-hmm. somewhere else. Mm. On the weekends, I would drive back home and so to DC from Pennsylvania. And um, during that time, I remember I would be thinking about Ring Shout. When I stopped to get gas or coffee, I would jot down little notes and I would listen to one of these Ring Shout songs. And it was one of them I listened to over and over again as I would think of different themes and ideas. And so the story was with me for a long time. Um, so when I say I was able to write it, like, finally in three weeks, it's because I'd been thinking about it for so long. Well, one of the things that uh, I want to—I wondered about when I was reading it, because there's a lot of history implied in that as well, a lot of—and uh, and, um, it's—one way of describing it is it's a horror novel about the world's worst movie revival. Um and so I have to wonder: Did you start with D.W. Griffith? Because the, the, for people who don't, who haven't read it, and you really should, it has to do largely with an enormous projection seven years after uh, *Birth of a Nation*. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a heinous plan to project it on Stone Mountain, Georgia, uh, yeah. on the mountain, and that that to some extent gets to the climax. But did you start with Griffith? Did you start with that really bizarre and powerful and awful movie? <laughs> In in some, I won't say I did, but it it eventually became part of the mix. Uh-huh. When I first started the, when I first thought of the idea, like I said, it was sometime, uh, I would say like 2016 or so, 2015, when the idea started really percolating in my head. What I knew I had was I had the main character Maurice. I had swords mm-hmm. and I had monsters. Okay, like, like I always, if people say, "Is it a horror? Is it gothic?" I said, "When I first started, I thought it was a fantasy story. <laughs> I just knew it was going to be set." in the American South. That I knew. So I knew it was going to be set someplace that people wouldn't think of a horror story, but that's where it was going to be. Um, and I thought it would be sometime around that time period, the 1920s or the early 1900s. And what I was drawing, the thing that most inspired me, I think, first off in my knowing about the clan as monsters was 
I got that from reading um, these ex-slave narratives uh, in the United States that were taken up, that were taken during the Great Depression by the Works Progress Administration, recording the narratives of the survivors, the last surviving uh, remnants of those people who had existed in slavery, often many of them as children, uh, you know, um, in American slavery. And they spoke of their experiences during Reconstruction after the Civil War. That was the rise of the first class. And it was from though their right readings that they described the clan as monster, right? And they would say this first clan aren't like the clan that we think of. They didn't always dress the same. Some of them wore sacks of flour over their heads. Sometimes they wore horns. Sometimes they pretended they had tails or they would do these tricks where they would pretend they could drink tons of water and these supernatural acts. And so, you know, these formerly enslaved people would sometimes call them haints or say there were supernatural ways to stop them, like laying out vines on the road, right? And so, all of that had actually been in my head um, for perhaps, I would say, almost a decade, because it was a decade before that, that I had done a master's thesis using the WPA slave narratives, and uh-huh. I stumbled upon that, and I jotted that stuff down. Cool. And so it was with me for 10 years. I didn't do anything with it. But when I first had the inkling of doing Ring Shout, I knew, oh, I've got to reach back to that stuff. It's been sitting there. It's been oh, working. Yeah. I've got to use that. And so I so when you say, did I go to D.W. Griffith Post? No, first thing I did was go to uh, those early slave narratives that I'd read. And then once I started, once I knew I was going to have them, once I knew the main character, D.W. Griffith and stuff just came, it just all came flowing on where, where I was going to go with this. Um, That's so, yeah. Because I, 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 I would have guessed otherwise, actually. Yeah. Because I thought one of the themes that's very powerful in, in, in Ring Shout is, is the power of media, which is not something yes. that you think of in 1922 necessarily. And one of the characters, um, there's, a, there's a little bit of historical background. It's very cleverly worked into dialogue uh, where you explain that basically the Klan was pretty incompetent by the early 1900s. that almost died out, in fact. Until Birth mm-hmm. of a Nation came along, or at least the novel The yeah. Klansman came along, mm-hmm. um, and and then Griffith really helped revive the Klan. I'm in Chicago. The Klan yeah. actually, I'm I'm 30 miles from Indiana, where the Klan actually elected yeah. senators in the 1920s. Yes, and mm-hmm. thinking, wow, this is one of the first media. What's the word? Giant media events. I mean, it was the biggest mm-hmm. uh, biggest premiere of a movie ever in 1915. Yeah. And then this plan yeah. to reshow it in 1922, which was a real plan, I gather. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was, uh, It was. yeah, nights, it was supposed to be its anniversary. And so it was brought back, yeah, 1922. And so, yeah, you're, so I should say the other part, it's like such a long story. The other part of the story is that I teach classes uh, as a professor on slavery and film. Mm-hmm. And the first film that we start with is Birth of a Nation. <laughs> and so I had taught that class many times. I'd watched Birth of a Nation over and over again. I had discussed this. You're talking about how it helps the rise of the second clan. Right. Right. And so you can see how in my head, as I start thinking of Ring Shot, as I start bridging the gap between that first time, you know, 10 years period, previous right. where I'd read those ex-slave narratives all the way to the time in which I'm teaching these classes and I've seen Birth of a Nation. And I've read all of these works on it and I've studied, you know, the people like William Monroe Trotter, the African-American activist who tries to, you know, shut the film down uh-huh. because of its importance to the Klan. Those worlds kind of all merged together <laughs> as I started putting it. And so, though that's not where I started with the ideas, it seemed inevitable that I was going to end up bringing D.W. Griffith in here and especially talking about the power of media. We talk about this in class all the time. Right. Well, yeah, uh, exactly. And then, what power in communicate you have to. It's media theory. It's like, how does the medium impact people? Well, and well, certainly, well, uh, Birth of a Nation had been a book. It had been a theater play. But something about it being on the celluloid screen for the first time, people you, seeing it, blew people's mind. Did you read the Clans right? one? The and it, it had the such impact. Yes, I, I had to for class, as well as the Tiger Spot. If it's still in so print, you can still get them. If you can still get those? You can still get them, oh, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, you can find them free, in fact. You can download them. You can see Birth of a Nation for free. I tell my students, you know, you can just go on YouTube. You can see the, the full thing. It, it's a very long movie. I guess one of the <laughs> – well, yeah. yeah. And the irony is that I, I've never looked into this, but isn't, isn't it just kind of uh, insanely ironic that Griffith's other famous movie is called Intolerance? Yes, which he which he does in in a sec because of all of the pushback. He yeah, gets. Uh, and he's actually shocked 
right? Even his, he has a black housekeeper domestic and he's like, are you offended by birth of a nation? And she's like, you know, yes, yes. (laughs) And he's actually surprised. And the thing about birth of a nation is that he actually, like there were like the NAACP and others got him to tone some things down. Wow. (laughs) There are worse parts. The film was supposed to have a part where all, where by the end, all the black people in the United States are sent back to Africa. Right. Uh, and that part was cut. <laughs> so Jeez. it can get worse. As long enough of as course, you know, again, the movie was so popular, of course, that, you know, it was shown at the White House. It was shown to Supreme Court judges. It, uh, the president, Tom Woodrow well, Wilson, is quoted Woodrow Wilson was a, a quote fan. in the film, right? So he's like, yeah. And so the film was immensely popular, unlike anything uh, that had ever been seen before. In fact, a young girl who went to see it uh, would grow up and write her own version of it uh i suppose a softer version called gone with the wind yeah. <laughs> right who had uh who had watched who had been enamored by birth of a nation so it's a powerful film um and i, I want to speak about that power and hold that it's had and the impact of it and it, helping form this group uh helping revive this group that as i think you just pointed out uh spread all throughout the united states as as and one of the things that uh uh, it, it raises one of the issues it raises is that for the for nineteen fifteen it was an extraordinarily well made film. I used to teach. Um, I actually I gave up this two or three semesters in a row. I would show Triumph of the Will in classes, and mm. in each class I'd find one or two students who would look at it and think, "Oh, that's not such a bad idea." In other words, it was so effective it was still brainwashing my students in the nineteen nineties. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's dangerous. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And I guess what made me um, focus on that was. There, there are some Lovecraftian elements in Ring Shout. Uh, it's not specifically alluded to, but we've had this whole uh, series of uh, uh, reconsidering Lovecraft. And Lovecraft was a horrible racist. There's no doubt about that. And we've got you know Victor Laval and Nora Jemison and all these things. Yeah, yeah. Lovecraft wasn't uh, didn't have a fraction of the impact as a racist that D.W. Griffith did. And and yet, yeah. and yet Griffith hasn't got nearly as much attention, maybe because Lovecraft is kind of in our wheelhouse and we're embarrassed about yeah. it. But nevertheless, uh, it, you, you make Griffith into it, not himself as a character because he doesn't show up as a character. But his work is far more damaging than anything Lovecraft ever wrote because Lovecraft simply didn't reach a broad enough audience. Yeah. And so, you know, I think, and by the way, I, I, I do have a, uh, while, I, while there's cosmic horror in there, if anybody paid attention, there is a a little nod to Lovecraft in there, a little twerk, okay. tweak and nod cra- Lovecraft in there at the the very end. The uh, the prince of um the prince of providence, the dark prince of providence oh, yeah, uh, right. line <laughs> at the end. So uh, which is supposedly is on his plaque, that's uh, where his bus. That's where I got that uh, type name from, the dark mm-hmm. prince of providence. And so yeah, and, and you know I, I wanted to, you know, part of this was my playing on the impact that Griffith had, right? So definitely, if you want to play the back, there's a lot of media theory in there about, you know, the impact uh, media has. But, uh, you know, I also wanted to, at the same time I talk about movie magic, I wanted to show that these are, as much as there are monsters and everything, these are people who decide to be these things, right? They decide to be this way. They choose this. And so what I didn't want to do was create a work where I'm saying, well, racism is something that have monsters, right? Racism is just uh-huh. created by monsters because that's a, that's almost an, it's almost an out because if they're monsters, mm. well, they're monsters. Yeah, right. they, they, they can't help themselves. And so I want to make sure that uh, people understand that, no, this is a real thing. And people did this for real. The monster part is an add-on. Right, that comes about. And the book appearing before the end of the Trump presidency probably helped a lot of its impact. (laughs) But to some extent, the one phrase that we heard again and again, and I don't disagree with it, it's become a cliche, was um, certain American politicians, uh, our ex president among them, throwing, this is the metaphor, throwing red meat to their base. And mm-hmm. you've got a character, Butcher Clyde, who's literally giving red meat to his Giving him red meat. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help it. The, the, <laughs> like, it's like the stuff writes itself, right? right. <laughs> uh, something that you ingest and it's literally meat. I actually I saw someone who, was, uh, who warned people. They said, if you're a vegetarian, you might not want to <laughs> Not only that, but I mean, it's, yeah. I mean if, if, if there's ever a good title for a horror story, and it probably has been one, it's free yeah. meat. I mean, free yeah. meat is a scary idea. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's really funny that while some of it is made up, part of some of it came from, because, you know, thinking of someone like a butcher, you know, and the importance of that. But then 
there were these posters during the time because the clan was in yeah. that second clan was so every day and normalized and electing people to office that you know there are pictures of the clan with uncle sam and they're like handing out food and doing all of these things so i was like of course there would be a butchery that just sees itself as it's open mm-hmm. the clan is a wholesome organization and they're here to give you wholesome food for the white family right but yeah what i'm playing of course in there is what they're giving you is hate and poison right, things exactly. to poison your mind in a sense right now without getting too without giving away everything <laughs> listening to you talk about rink shout and about master jin it's plain that your academic work has fundamentally fed into the kind of stories you're telling and discovering i'm kind of curious though the other half of that must be or part of it must be your experience as a reader. Where did your experience with genre begin? Oh man. So yeah, it's, it's funny, funny you say that because, you know, I had someone ask me, they said like, cause they were at ring shot. They were like, you write like a lot about trauma. And I said, no, no. I said, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes I write other things. I said, well, they say the nine Negro teeth and ring shot. I said, yeah, that's, that's, you know, I think as you had said earlier, Jonathan, that's, that's one strain. I said, I have other stories that are less popular that are completely secondary world fantasies where um, there's certainly high stakes and climactic things happening, but you're not going to find any one-on-one relationship with our world, right? So there are different paths on which I write on. And so, and I think that just reflects that my, my introduction to genre, I mean, you know, I was... I was born in the United States, but I was sent back as an early age to live in my parents' homeland, Trinidad and Tobago. And mm-hmm. there, um, I was just introduced to a lot of folklore, um, whether it was from people telling me folklore or uh, watching a lot of Hindi television, <laughs> where I could see a great deal, uh, see the Mahabhatra and other things played out <laughs> on screen. Um, when I came back to the United States, uh, one of the first things I remember doing is sitting down and watching a Godzilla movie. I think it was Godzilla versus Monster Zero or something with my father who loved Godzilla movies, loved old, loved these older like Boris Karloff movies and others. So I would sit down and watch all of those with him. So like there's a movie, in fact, I can't think of the name of it, where this group gets the devil's book. And I don't know if anybody, it's an old movie, right? Mm. And I forget the name of it. I can't think of it right now. And they like little by little, different things happening to him. Literally, an octopus pulls down a house. Oh, that can't <laughs> right. That's really yeah, I can't think of it now. Somebody listening to it was like, "I yeah. know that film." So we would see these obscure films, and then on the other hand, my mother was a huge Twilight Zone fan. Ah, the okay. old black and white ones. And so I would sit with her and watch those, and and she would take my sister and I to the library, and then I was just started ingesting all of these books. Like I think. You know, whether they were kids' books or, like, I still remember when I read, I read all of the uh, Narnia series, like, <laughs> literally mm-hmm. in, like, from September to December, right? And I think I was, like, in second grade. I think in first grade, uh, somebody handed me The Hobbit, right? Mm-hmm. And so the stuff was just with me. And so I was, I think I was reading, I don't, I can't think of a time when I wasn't the stuff, mm-hmm. when that wasn't the stuff that I wanted to read more than anything. And so I think I, I went through all of the stuff that, I guess kids read. And then I remember sometime in middle school, I like, somebody was like, here's some Bradbury. And I was like, Oh, this is the adult stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I read Frank Herbert's Dune, you know? And so it's like, and so I think I've always just been into genre. My, you know, I always had friends, family, you know, who were my sister, my, my parents, everybody I knew was into it in some shape, form or fashion. Right. They didn't, read that stuff. All my friends read comic books, right? Like I always say the coolest kids in my school uh, were comic book fans, right? They were also the most popular kids that everybody wanted to hang out with. And so, you know, this stuff was just always around me. Did you read read much out of genre or because you became a historian? So what else? I read some. Oh yeah. I read history. Right. And so I think I read other things as well, but I think, uh, when it came to like my, you know, I think I just always liked history. Like I would read history and I just loved the narrative yeah. stories. My parents were also big into politics. So we would sit and watch the news and mm-hmm. debate and discuss. And so that kind of stuff was always there. And they, they had a lot of history, especially black history and African history. They had a lot of that in the house. Um, but at the same time, I had these other things and you know, it was just, just all part of life. Right. Um, 
you know, and so I, and I just always had this understanding. I always tell people the joke that my mother, it's a true story, would not allow me to see Star Wars when it first came out. Really? Because she said there are no black people in Star Wars. She said, and you're not going to see a film uh, in the future where there are no black people. <laughs> She's like, I don't like what that's saying. And I was like, well, actually, mom, it's, it's, you know, set in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. She's like, yeah, I'm not buying it. <laughs> but I did get to see Empire Strikes Back because Billy B. Williams was Lando Calrissian, right? And so, you know, so I, so I want to say that in my household, in some ways, if you look at my work, like I came from a household where I had this, these political, cultural, you know, upbringing where and social ideas of social commentary at the same time, you know, I also had this a family who could sit and watch genre with me and to take me these things who was interested in the same way. And so I think that comes out. I mean, in Twilight Zones, come on, there's oh, yeah. how didactic and commentary <laughs> can you get? Yeah. But the thing about the old Twilight Zones, and I, I think it, it matches with Bradbury, uh, because I like mm-hmm. to have black and white ones too. And that is they must have taught you efficient storytelling. I'm going back to a story like ah, uh, yeah. Dead Jen in Cairo. You, you, you tell the story, you get in, there, there's a lot of implications about the culture, but basically you get in the story, tell it and get out. And that's one of the, that Serling could do this well, but Matheson and Beaumont and Bradbury and their episodes could do it really well. And at 24 minutes, you get a story, which isn't always great, but at least it's over. Uh, and none of the revivals of Twilight Zone since then have been that efficient in the story. Ah, remember the ones that were like too long? They were too. They, they, there's something about the fact that I think what you're saying is so well. Like, uh, like I always joke with my friends. I said you could watch something like an episode like The Howling Man, or yeah. you could watch, you know, um, uh, It's a Good Life, and the special effects they couldn't rely on special effects you see the howling man you have to rely on camera angles right twist that camera so that you can see the man falling and i still like my wife and i we still watch these you know like every uh every when they show them on sci-fi channel yeah we still watch the marathons Mm -hmm. at new year's and it's just amazing what they could do with so little right they didn't have any any uh green screens (laughs) Thing of the sword. They only and they, you're right. They had 24 minutes. You had commercials. They had 24 minutes to immerse you in this world. And you know, I can't say I consciously pick that up from them, but there is. I, I think there's something about that, perhaps, in my storytelling. But then again, understand that by the time I hit high school, I was I was into massive well, fantasy yeah. tomes. <laughs> and so <laughs> the other side of me. Uh, can sit down with a good Robert Jordan novel and fall into it forever and ever and ever and never complain. I will never be one to complain. This book is too long. No, 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 no. Does, does that I mean, want it all. Does that mean we can expect a 10-volume a, a immersive secondary world fantasy coming up? Well, you should. here's the secret everyone should know. Um, my first attempt at short story writings were embarrassingly long. Like my short stories would end. I'd be like, I am done with this short story. 24,000 words. <laughs> you, know, you know, and I had to understand market. Where the market where they were like, yeah, nobody's published. There's nothing to do with that. It's just going to sit there. <laughs> yeah. And so I had to teach myself in many ways how to write yeah. uh, shorter stories, well, how you... to yeah. write smaller stories. And so... Stuff like A Dead Shin in Cairo was one of these stories that I thought might be a short story that ended up being much longer. And I would have had nowhere to send it mm-hmm. if not, if Diana Fuller Tor didn't say, okay, let's give this a chance. Mm-hmm. You know, and Tor had this place to have these novelettes and novellas. And so, you know, I, so all this to say that for all that I may have found a way to tell all of this in this space, um, part of it was simply learning how to write shorter stories because, uh, my fantasy tome uh, great grandfathers uh, had me writing, you know, very flowery ways to discuss the Aes Sedai for ten pages. When did you actually begin writing yourself? Because obviously, you've been sucking up the influence from th- film, from books, from history, family politics, the whole thing. There must be a point where you start creating your own stories. How far back does that go? Really, you know, I would create little stories. I think from since I was a kid, mm-hmm. but. These were for friends. These were for my sister. I remember I like she found like old comic book I had drawn for her way back, some cartoon kind of comic book. So I think I was doing it for a long time, but I never thought 
that I would do it and other people like for a mass audience. Mm-hmm. I never, I never, it was never in my mind that I would publish something and people would read my words and they would pay to read my words. That, I don't think I thought about doing that until after I'd graduated college. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was later in life, really, like my early, tw- like my 20s. And really, I say my early 20s, then even the late 20s, when I started thinking like, maybe I should try to get something published. And I had no idea how to do it. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand the market at all. I just knew that I wanted to write suddenly. Um, you know, and I've, I've thought of like a lot of reasons why I may not have thought of it before. I think I was had my academic focus. But then quite honestly, in this, I think this almost subconsciously, I didn't know a lot of Black writers mm-hmm. growing up read a lot of black writers going up when I wrote sci-fi. I didn't discover Octavia Butler and the others until college, right? Until until my collegiate years. And so I grew up reading genre where I would look for people who looked like me in there anywhere I could. If you just said brown, I'm, I'm there, right? <laughs> like you didn't, like whitewashing Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea novels didn't fool me. I, I knew what I read yeah. <laughs> in those pages, right? And so I, I think there's a way when I think back it never entered my mind that I could be a sci-fi writer because mm-hmm. I just didn't see sci-fi writers who looked like me. You'd never met, right? And I, yeah. I, I think I don't think it consciously I thought of it at that time. Mm-hmm. But it's looking back and wondering why didn't I? Why was I so into this stuff? Why could I read ten R.A. Salvatore books like in like two weeks? But I never thought maybe I could. When I was even though I was doing stuff for friends, I never thought what if I what if a book would like by me was sitting in a shelf somewhere. Simply because, you know, I just didn't see black writers doing that. Yeah. And I, maybe it wasn't until college that I read my first uh, Galanian. I read my first Butler sure. and others. And I thought, oh, wow, maybe I can. You you didn't go. Well, there seems to be this thing where you need to get an idea of almost being given permission to be part of what's going on, isn't there? I mean, th- th- this is what yeah. people are talking about so much right now, the importance of being seen in the stories and in the environment around those stories being created. If you don't see that, you don't, first of all, imagine yourself doing it. And then you look for the process that almost, let's say, gives you permission to take part. And if it doesn't appear to be welcoming, and quite often a gatekept environment like genre publishing does not look at all welcoming, then you don't click over into thinking that you could be part of it. Yeah. And I think that's it. Again, this wasn't even me thinking like, oh, man. If I try it, I know it won't work. I'm a black writer. I'm saying I didn't even it didn't even click in my mind mm. that I would also be a writer of those books. Mm. Even though I could go to the bookstore, go to the library and pull them out, never in my mind. That was something those folks might have well lived on Mars <laughs> <laughs> who wrote those kinds of things, right? And again, and part of this was representation, right? That representation oh. matters in many ways for you to see yourself and thinking and just getting that idea like, oh, wait, I think I can do this too. I think I want to do this too. I think this is something viable, right, that that I can do. When did you become aware that there was a community? I mean, you, you didn't go to workshops. You didn't uh, go to Clarion, I don't think, mm-hmm. did you? Uh, how did you no. sort of connect with no. the world of, uh, of, of other writers? Because at the time you're talking about, in the last 20 years or so, we've seen some very prominent careers uh, yeah. With, with with Nalo Hopkinson and mm-hmm. Nettie Okorafor and, and Kay Jemison and right. Uh, uh, right. and so forth and so on, uh, and of course Delaney and Butler were there. Yeah, and I think a lot of and I gotta say a lot of this is happening at the right time. Like I always tell people, like I don't think Ring Shout or even Dead Shit in Cairo would have gone anywhere uh, maybe 10, 15 mm. years ago. I don't even know if there was anyone who was at the gates. Right, it mattered that someone like Diana Fo was at those gates right. to say that. Yeah. You know, I think that Dead Jin story can work. I think that Ring Shout story can work. I don't know that there are other people who would have taken the chance and seen this as a story. So there's a way that at the time I was writing, that the market seemed ready for these things and at least open and receptive, especially for the gatekeepers. And so when you ask, like, who am I? What community? When I first started writing, I really hadn't. I was a community of one <laughs> and my friend, right? And then I actually stopped writing for a while. And when I returned to writing, it was actually finding um, online spaces with black writers, Uh Mm -hmm. right? And I happened to find the indie writer, Milton Davis, right? Who puts out his work and he knew Charles Saunders. Mm -hmm. And it was actually a story I wrote like 
meeting them and being in that space and suddenly seeing, wow, there are all of these black writers and like most of them are indie writers, most of them are people never, right. nobody's heard of, a few have gone on, but most were just, but they're just interested. They're artists and some want to do comic books and some of them are interested in doing films. And it was a spot called actually, so it was called Black Science Fiction Society. Uh-huh. And I just sat there in awe because I was like, you know, I was out here trying to do all this stuff by myself and there are all these other people who had these similar ideas. And it was being in that space that on that site, they would have a site where you could just write, mm-hmm. just write stuff. It's called The Forge, throw out a yeah, story. And I started writing a short story called Skin Magic. Mm-hmm. And that story, by chance, uh, Charles Saunders saw it and he's putting out this anthology with Milton Davis called uh, Griot. And he was like, and Charles, these Charles Saunders, who I mm-hmm. also recently discovered, uh, he was like, this story, I'd like this to be in this uh, <laughs> in this anthology and it's too long but i would like to extend the word count wow. uh just That's a lot great. of story in here and hearing that literally bought me back to writing oh, right? yeah. uh it brought me back to doing writing again from then on that is when i think that was my community and it was from there thanks to thanks to social media and other things i started a blog where i started writing i think that's how i met diana i didn't even mm-hmm. know she worked at tour mm-hmm. i just knew her as the owner of this blog mm-hmm. <laughs> uh beyond victoriana and so I started, I think that was my entrance into um, the larger space of genre writing, which unfortunately, for a very long time, it was these separate worlds where that world of these Black creatives was completely divorced from the world of Nebulas and, and, and Hugos. And, 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 and that was like a, yeah. another universe. And, Saunders, and I started I started myself and a friend of mine, another writer and editor Troy Wiggins, for instance, mm-hmm. we started talking about ourselves like we live in a bridge of these worlds. And so we kind of started learning more about the market world and more about mm-hmm. uh, that larger world. And I think that's how I started building a semblance of a community, right? It was really those of us who wanted to know more about that world, people like Troy and others who would go on to found different groups, um, that that became my community. Great. Yeah, I was, uh, and I still sometimes feel on the outside. I still sometimes feel like, <laughs> well, I mean, I, like, I, I don't sure know half of the things that went on like ten years ago that there was drama, and I was like, I have no idea what you nerds are talking about. Like, I don't know what's going on. What are you talking about? It happened at a con that I had never heard of, or you know, and it's it's still been this thing where I'm trying to like learn and understand more what's, you know, of that side. And so it's still a learning process. For and, me. and Saunders himself kind of withdrew from that whole world and just, yeah. with, and, and, and I don't know if that was out of despair or whatever. I mean, the, the, the news of his death was stunning yeah. to most of us because it was, it was, it was stunning to all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the way it happened in such a purity. Exactly. You know, yeah. and it just, it just felt wrong on many ways that, and I, the only thing I'm thankful for is that finally there were some great write-ups finally in Canada. Finally, were yeah, like, finally was you know, who this person was. He was mm. like this giant uh, in this genre. And, you know, I think Milton Davis and others raised money to get him a great tombstone right. and everything. Yeah. So, you know, that was good. Yeah. My guess is you mentioned... Your first stories stuff. appeared about... Sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. Oh, no, okay. I was, I was going to make a completely oh, no, no, say, yeah. but I'll, I'll do it later. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just this. Mm-hmm. My thought was this. I was going to say. That- <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Gary. Go on. Make the comment. You, do, you, it, do it. I, do I it. think Ring Shout fifty years ago. Ring Shout. Something like Ring Shout might have been published, but it wouldn't have been visible to the science fiction and fantasy community. It would have been published the same way Ishmael Reed was being published fifty years ago, or the same way. Yes, Reed I think something published. like that. Yes. Uh, I mean, because you know, that's what I meant. Yeah, you know, back radio yeah. broke down. It's a terrific alternate history that nobody in our field ever talks mm-hmm. about. Um, and he was never right. associated yeah. with science fiction fantasy community, nor was Sam Greenlee, who's yeah. sort of getting revived these days again. But anyway, that was exactly. the point I was I, going to. I fully agree. I think I think the space that it would have been done in, it would have been, quote unquote, the black story, <laughs> but it would not have gotten, you know, recognition right. as something that should be seen in speculative fiction. The way I see today, like I'm always arguing that Toni Morrison's beloved uh, belongs uh, in, it, it belongs in both worlds. It needs to be seen as a form of literary genre. I think it should be seen as, right? Uh, it's right. got everything you need. It's got a ghost. It's definitely. It's got a haunting. <laughs> it's got all kinds of things in there. So I don't see how it can, how it can miss. But yeah, I, I agree with that. But, you know, I just, I'm sorry, just to say that one of the reasons I say this, um, 
I think back when I published a book called uh, The Black God's Drums mm-hmm. that came out in uh, 2018. And the front cover was a phenomenal cover of a young Black girl on the cover with the airships. And simply that cover, I've gotten so much feedback from uh, from both parents and because it was I didn't write it as a as a middle grade or YA I wrote it just as a story as an adult story but I've gotten from adults from middle graders and others who were saying that image alone drew them and I yeah. said I should know I would I used to sit in bookstores you know in the sci-fi section just looking at the covers of course right don't you have a book by its cover not in science fiction of course we're first <laughs> gravitated by what's on that cover that dragon or what have you let me see that let me turn it over and see what this thing is about. And they said, simply seeing that was amazing. And so at the same time they were saying that, I had a writer uh, who said he's so thankful that that cover was on there. He said, because I published a book where they wanted to make a cover like this with a young black girl on it. And this was just five years previous, wow. like yeah. so it was 2013. He said, and they wouldn't let it go, yeah. right? They would not allow me to have that cover. And I, I still think to this day, my story did okay, but it could have done much better if that cover was there, but they just didn't think a cover like that would sell. He said, so I'm just happy that we've reached a point, right? And all I could think about was, this was just 2013. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> You're right. Obama was president. <laughs> you, know, you know, that even during that time, that that's not too long ago. Oh, no. That, you know, uh, booksellers, that major publishers were still like, I'm a little nervous about that uh let's 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 not go with her on the cover let's go with something else or even whitewashing covers was something oh, yeah. else still I mean, that happened to arcadia butler so, yeah. uh, uh, when they first yeah came out. yeah and so all this to say you know i i all this to say you know you always i always say that my writing was not something that happened overnight i was a lot of fitful stops and starts sure. one of the reasons i stopped writing was because the large novel that i wanted to do went up to a publishing house and they decided they didn't know how to market black fantasy. So they said, no. Uh, and this was by the way, a black imprint, right? Who oh, wow. wanted to do something like this, but they had no idea what to do with it. They'd never done anything like this. Uh, and they didn't know what to do. And so they said, sorry, we, we can't. And that kind of bummed me out. And I didn't write for a while <laughs> until I went back. And so all this to say, you know, I, as much as I, I wish, you know, at one point, man, I wish I had made it then. I think some of the writing I'm doing, like literally the reception of it, the ability of it to be published, the ability of it to be published in in major spaces and get marketed the way it is, I don't know if it could have happened at any other time but now. Do you have any... You know, I just don't... Sorry, do you have any feeling for what changed? Because I think you're completely right. I think the last decade has completely changed things. And I have this feeling that, in fact, last year has completely changed things again. Yeah. And I'm curious as to whether you have a feeling as to what prompted that change. Because, I mean, it's, it seems overly simplistic, and it's not completely accurate either, to say that an imprint like Tor.com, which is particularly open to mm-hmm. uh, different voices, provides a platform and they market them very well. But it does seem there's been some kind of fundamental shift in the last five to ten years in how these narratives are being received how welcome they uh, welcome they are and also how they're presented to readers as though there actually is a, a general readership for these books and why wouldn't you market yeah. them that way yeah I, I i think i think it's agitation i think people were knocking at that door yeah. i think people were knocking at the door people were making their complaints heard they'd always been right <laughs> sam yeah. delaney was sure. writing about this a long time ago right about yes. in complaining but i think i think agitation but I think also, I think, again, so important, getting people behind the scenes. Mm. I think having people there who were reading, like like, like when Troy and I would talk, we would talk to these other Black creatives, we literally almost strategically said, we need to get in on these slush piles, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Like, we need diverse people reading the slush piles because there are stories there that it's not even somebody's malicious behind the scenes. They just don't understand the story. It doesn't relate to them in some mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. They don't get the jokes. They don't find the, the setting is too bizarre for them. So they're, they're going to pass it by. But somebody else might be more familiar with this. Somebody else might find this interesting. And they might allow it to simply get out of the slush pile. right? And so I think part of it was agitation. I think part of it was getting people... Um, in places like Tor, getting certain editors behind the scene and others. My dog is really acting up. That's okay. Yeah. Chill out for a second. Uh, I think, um, I think again, uh, getting people I know, literally, one of the groups we're at, about 
four or five of our people went on to be slush readers for short story markets, right? And I don't know how many stories of people of color they lifted out of there, but I'm certain there were a few who they lifted out and people, it turned out that the audience was always there. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like I always say, the audience, I think, was always there. I think, of course, they're going to the people who are don't want to see that. And they some people are just not interested. Some people are. Sure. They let you know they're not interested in very, very, you know, antisocial ways. But I think there were also people who just wanted something more. I think, as you pointed out, they've seen steampunk in London many times. Mm-hmm. So what happens when it's in New Orleans? What happens if it's in Cairo? I'm interested. I want to see this. I want to see something different. And I think um, perhaps uh, I think the market in many ways is reacting to that, realizing, oh, we thought our audience was, I don't know, 18 to 20 something young white males, (laughs) young white uh, cisgender straight males. Turns out, no, people like me, like my parents have always been into this stuff. We've all the my community, people I've known my community have always liked this. Uh, And all you have to do is Give us something, uh, something different, and we'll be there. Yeah. And uh, you know, like I always joke and say, there's a way that in the United States, especially um, black culture, in some ways, and sometimes the culture that black people like gets picked up by the mainstream, right? And so all you have to do is get a large enough of uh, black people to like it, and if you do you will suddenly find many other people <laughs> also love it. Like I said, right. there was something about like the Black Panther phenomenon yeah. was in part that they made a great movie, mm. but there was something about having Black communities just doing all of this behind the scenes, pitching this movie that I think made it also palatable to the mm. rest of America as a Black cultural icon, right? As, as, as like hip hop or soul music or anything else mm. made it digestible in, uh, for many other people. Yeah. I also suspect one thing that's happened is that generational change in publishing is opening doors because Mm -hmm. holders of long time perceived wisdom are no longer there to hold it in an unquestioned way. I mean, one of the obvious examples to me was I remember having conversations about how you couldn't have covers that were green, right? Green covers were not doable on books. You couldn't sell one. And the real reason for it was at a certain time, they couldn't get good color registration when they were printing, mm-hmm. when they printing green, so the covers would be muddy and look horrible, but people kept going for 30 years after going, well, you can't have green book mm-hmm. covers. Yeah. But let me ask you this, because we we're past our hour and we should begin to wind up. Your first stories that I'm aware of appeared around 2010. Um, mm-hmm. Jim Carr comes out 2016. How yeah. strange is it to find yourself now in 2021 on the cusp of the publication of your first novel? Uh, it's surreal. <laughs> um, even when those first stories that come out in 2010, understand that I had been trying for 10 years before that. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, I don't have the, I don't have the wonderful story where like my first novel, I went out <laughs> and I got an agent and everything and boom, no, I'd been trying. And this is when I was, you know, I didn't even understand the market. It yeah. was, my return to stories, story writing around 2008, 2009, 2010 was when I really started saying, okay, let me study the market mm-hmm. because I didn't before because I was mm-hmm. so outside of everything. Now let me actually figure out what the market wants, understand the market. I remember going to, uh, I forget the name, Duotrope and different things like that, mm-hmm. just looking at the markets and seeing what, and really understanding and really reading a lot more of uh, the short story genre because I was such a novel reader for the most part, but getting yeah. much more into short story writing, um, story reading, which took me into short story writing. And I think, you know, at the time, um, I was just hoping that something would take. And so I was getting a bit of, you know, I started getting small successes, a story here, a story there. But it wasn't until 2016 with Adegin in Cairo that things took off. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think before that, it was just, oh, if I can just get the story in, I have my spreadsheet of rejections and I have my one off and I'll send it off to this big major market who I know will reject me within 10 seconds because that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And I have the others who will hold on to my story for three months until they come back to tell me. Eh. And, you know, Adegin and Kyra really changed things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I knew that it was going to be a big deal. Uh, in fact, it was published the same year, the same day that I was walking to get my PhD. Mm-hmm. And as wow. I was walking to the stage, I was trying to read my phone and <laughs> my heart was pounding. I was like, what are the comments going to be? 
uh, because I knew this was a, I understood who Tor was. And I was like, these are the guys whose books I have in my house mm-hmm. <laughs> like, with the, on the spine. I was like, the audience is going to be much bigger than the indie places I've been published or the mm-hmm. one or two uh, semi-pro markets I've been published. This is, this is big, right? Um, and I was blown away by the positive reception. And it was really from there that doors opened up for the next story, uh, The Black God's Drums, mm-hmm. which had actually been a story that I'd written in 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, I bought the Diana Foe and she helped me work it into something, something more, um, you know, and then <laughs> the rest happened. And so here we are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the thing I'd long wanted, I think I've been working on, I could say for a good 20 years to be published, a novel, full novel is finally here and it just feels surreal. And I'm going to reward myself by people are going to find this spot. I'm going to reward myself by finally reading the last Robert Jordan book, uh, which I had basically, I have on my shelf and I told myself, I'm not going to read it. And I already know because thanks to everybody. I don't know what's going to happen. Everybody talk. But I told myself, I'm not going to read that until I publish my own book. Uh, so after May 11th, this summer, I'm open to read uh, Memory of Light. Just get it, get it done. <laughs> finally end that saga. And what are we going to expect from you next? Ah, after this, I'm going to rest. No. Good idea. <laughs> I have contracts. I have things I cannot speak of, and I have things that are going to be expected from me from tour. Um, I'm working now. I'm actually finishing another novella, which is taking me back to my love of just uh, pure secondary fantasy. Um, so no alternate history, no mm-hmm. world that that people would recognize, but completely alternate world. Um, inspirations from all over the place. Uh, the city I'm in could be inspired by everywhere from East African Swahili states to Angkor Wat to Venice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a little bit of all of that thrown in there and nothing would anyone would recognize. Uh, and it's about an undead assassin. It's, yeah. it's <laughs> but, you know, it's going to be interesting because um, there's a way when as you said, when you're writing, when you're writing in our world, alternate history, you kind of have templates, right? On the one hand, you have boundaries, and oh, I can't break those boundaries. Cairo is where Cairo is going to be. New Orleans is where New Orleans is. Macon, Georgia is in Macon, Georgia. Yeah. Um, but then you have a template. You have to stay within those lines, and you have a lot to work with. Uh, creating that secondary world, it's all you. You've got to figure out what the trade negotiations are, what the language is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the geography and everything right and so it's it's fun it's it's liberating but uh but it's also hard hard work in some way well a ring ring shout is out in uh, bookstores right now a master of gin can be pre-ordered or picked up in more bookstores near people starting probably next week i would imagine it'll be out there with a rather stunningly beautiful cover i think by stefan martinier and for now p jelly clark thank you so much for making the time to join us we genuinely appreciate it Thank you very much. Thank you both. This was a great conversation. A lot of I'm happy to see that Gary has probably finished that bottle of wine. Okay. I was going to say. It was only half full to begin with. In my defense, there were two glasses. <laughs> no, no, no. No judgments here. No judgments here at all. No judgments. Right. Uh, well, thank you again. And until next week, this has been the Coot Street Podcast.